Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. On a great day for talk radio. It's the Friday edition, albeit uh, somewhat wet and desolate, but uh, the weekend does promise to be a little brighter and better. As a matter of fact, uh, Friday tonight is going to be an interesting one. They've got the Monk debate going on at Roy Thompson Hall, and uh, it's got an interesting subtext to it as well. Let's pick it up with Conrad Black, noted author, commentator, historian, and publisher. Conrad, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you, John. You going to the Monk debate tonight? I am not. I'm debating David Frum, who's an old friend of mine, on that subject a couple of times before Christmas. Uh, and you can you can overdo these things. I don't see Steve Bannon as a an entirely serious advocate on behalf of the president, uh, but I, I will I will catch it on the internet uh, because you know I want to I want to since I have to play the same role myself. I want to at least see how others do it. <laughs> right, and so uh, you'll get a, a leg up knowing how uh, from his planet. <laughs> well, B- B- Bannon is such a flake. You don't know what he's going to say. You know, but. Uh, well, therein lies the drama. But I'm kind of curious, because the proposition in this debate tonight is that the future of Western politics is populist, not liberal. And this is Bannon, who is going to uh, support that contention, or he's going to argue for it. Trump's going to, uh, Trump from is going to argue against it. Uh, how do you feel about that question? Uh, I've I written a piece in the National Review from, you know, in New York uh, this week about that. I, I think uh, the name word populism is being spread too widely and used too loosely. Uh, people are assimilating the new, you know, recent election in Brazil, Mr. Bolsonaro, uh, the Hungarian election, Viktor Orban, the Poles, um, or Zieski, or whatever his name is, I mean, I may not be pronouncing it right, Trump and the Brexit vote, all as part of the same thing. And, and there's special issues, different issues in all those countries. Uh, except for Brazil, there's a thread of concern about this new type of immigration, which isn't individual families making a conscious decision to move to a new place, to set up shop there, get on there, and become uh, 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 proper and proud members of the country they're moving to, which is the kind of immigration that built the North, all the countries in the Americas and Australia. Uh, it, it, it's these waves of desperate people pouring in with no formality at all and no particular concern about what they do when they get there, as long as they're not being persecuted or starving as they maybe were before. And and, and uh, there is a concern about that in several of the countries that I mentioned, uh, but it's not fair to just call that populism. And uh, in Brazil, it has absolutely nothing to do with it. It's more to do with the fact that the last three presidents were all indicted for embezzlement and, and two of them convicted of it. Uh, 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 so you can't just take a catchment and say that's populism. But to the extent that it means... Um, a, 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 a proclamation of unifying values in a whole nation, uh, flag-waving at its best, that we, you know, we, we are one people, we'll face these crises together, and we're not atomizing society into subgroups of sexual orientation, pigmentation, and so forth. 
uh, I think I think that is the choice, and and I think and I think in the end, the people who emphasize national unity in a positive way uh, will succeed because this constant atomization into aggrieved interest groups and pandering to their grievances is going to fragment society completely eventually, and and there will be a revulsion against it. But the the, the problem is the the desperate last guard stand of those people is to accuse their opponents, not of being populists, but as in the United States, of white nationalists, as if it was the Ku Klux Klan. And and, and so, for example, these demonstrators, uh, not many of them, but there were some, when the president and his his family went to uh, to pay their respects after this terrible uh, outrage in the, uh, the synagogue in Pittsburgh, uh, it was outrageous. I mean, the, the Jewish community of the United States and the state of Israel will wait a long time to find a president of the U.S. more friendly to them than this one is. Again, with Conrad Black, author, commentator, and historian. Yeah, when Trump used the word nationalist, he's a nationalist. Uh, the left climbed all over him for that. Uh, was that a dog whistle? Uh, they claimed it was code, and, you know, it's synonymous with white nationalism. And uh, it's, compl- it's completely dishonest. It's just demagogy. It isn't. It's, it's when he said when he says he America first. He didn't mean Charles Lindbergh playing footsie with the Nazis. He he, he meant uh, like all leaders of all countries, we put our own interests first. It doesn't mean that we have no respect for the interests of other countries. It doesn't mean that we disdain other countries, and it doesn't mean that. But he's right. I mean, the, Trump is right. They should not be running an $870 billion trade deficit with the world. And, uh, and then they shouldn't be allowing anyone just to facilitate the entry of, of 100,000 illiterate peasants a month into the United States without the authorities in the U.S. even taking their names down. What's he thinking by placing 15,000 troops on the border in anticipation of this caravan coming up from Central America? Well, it, it's got to stop. It's an intolerable state of affairs because of a, a group of uh, uh, organized, in the sense that apparently everyone on this caravan uh, uh, ponied up $7,000, which if you're an unemployed Honduran, there's a lot of money uh, to, to get into the caravan. So somebody is organizing it. And this idea that just because they are leading miserable lives in Central America, they can ipso facto with a click of their fingers in a long bus ride or walk, enter the great United States of America is a fiction, and he won't stand for it. He's right not to stand for it. All right. Well, you know, taking a stand, uh, this is something that we could use a little more of here, I guess, in this country with our leadership, because uh, there's an issue that you write about in tomorrow's post, and it's been festering for the longest time. It has to do with uh, health care in Canada and whether or not the current model of universality, the public health care system that we herald as being the best in the world, is the model that's a it doesn't seem to be, and you're talking about Dr. Brian Day, who used to head the Canadian Medical Association, fighting this one, if necessary, to the Supreme Court for the right to basically operate clinics, because he's got one of the largest private medical facilities in Canada now with 100 doctors and dental surgeons, and uh, this is Camby uh, Surgeries, performing over 5,000 surgical procedures a year, you say. So he's already kind of operating on the margins of a, a two-tiered system, but you're saying this is a critical fight. Why is it critical? Uh, well, because the government of British Columbia, the new government, which is, as he says, the most left-wing government ever elected in, in North America, 
is trying to stamp him out and, and trying to stamp all of them out, but he's the example of it. He is, I guess, the largest, most prominent in BC, but there are many others. And, uh, and it is a complete myth that if you dispensed with the private clinics, the, uh, the official health care plan uh, set up under the Canada Health Act uh, could, could cope with these people. They couldn't. And we have long waits in some areas, sometimes for urgent uh, medical treatment in, in most of the provinces. And if you, if you actually abolish the officially tolerated private medicine we have now, you will aggravate that problem. I mean, the fact is we're rationing health care now. I mean, my wife and I have at times been helpful to, financially helpful to, some people who've had, who who are not well-to-do at all and can't afford the treatment, uh, uh, who've had um, mental health issues. And, and uh, they, they, OHIP provides two visits for them. Well, two visits aren't going to deal with these things. And, and if, if someone wasn't helping them, they would be in desperate condition, and and that is a very. I don't. I only cite that because they're cases that we ourselves are familiar with. But that happens all over the country, and and involves a very large number of people. And add to that that the, the Supreme Court of Canada in a decision that was only applicable to Quebec because that was the ambit of it. Uh, upheld the rights under the Quebec Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and, and it may not be that all of your listeners would know that under the British North America Act at the time of Confederation, but continued through the Constitution Act of 1981, property and civil rights belong to the provinces, their provincial jurisdictions, and the province of Quebec felt that private clinics were acceptable and uh, under under their jurisdiction of control of civil rights in Quebec, and the Supreme Court of Canada upheld that decision. And uh, and if, if if that is the case in Quebec, there's no reason why it isn't the case in British Columbia. But in this case, the government of British Columbia has set out to stamp out these clinics, and they're acting out of socialist dogma, not the slightest reference to the best possible, fairest, and most widely distributed and promptly distributed health care for the whole population. And so if we had competition in the system with private clinics operating, uh, that would be more efficient, uh, more cost-efficient, I guess. It wouldn't uh, actually leave people out on the margins. Those who couldn't afford to pay for this health care in clinics, uh, they wouldn't go without, would they? Uh, just the reverse, in my opinion. You would then get all those who could afford it, which is most of the people, uh, taking some level of their health care in the private sector, taking the pressure off the, in this province, OHIP doctors, the, the, you know, the, the, Medi- the Medicare doctors, giving them more time to, to shorten the waiting list and give the care needed by people who, who don't have the financial option of going elsewhere for it. And so if they ever were to win this, if it goes to the Supreme Court, uh, the final arbiter, that just kicks the system wide open, doesn't it? It will do. And, and look, there's another factor here. We suffered a loss of 10,000 doctors when we brought in the Canada Health Act under Pierre Trudeau and Monique Beja in 1984. And, uh, and, and we have a low ratio of doctors to 100,000 population. I mean, much lower than many poorer countries like Argentina, for example, and, and, and certainly lower than, you may say, our peers like Sweden or Switzerland or the United States. And, and, uh, 
uh, all of them, Britain, Germany, France, and uh, Japan. And uh, if, if, you, if you did what is envisioned here, which is a, a two-tier system, it's a, it's a mixed system, public and private sector working together, as, as happens in most other countries, then, you, then uh, this drain of doctors leaving to get better pay in the private sector in the United States uh, than they get in, the, in, in Medicare positions here in Canada, that would stop, or substantially stop, anyway. All right, even though it still seems to be the third rail here in Canadian politics, but it's something uh, worth watching. We'll keep our eye on it. And uh, if, you, if you put on thick enough gloves, you can touch the third rail. <laughs> All right, that's what we're going to need. Uh, boxing gloves, maybe, because that's uh, a fight that's uh, taking place now and uh, slated even to ramp up. Uh, something, as I say, worth watching. Your column worth reading. That's tomorrow in the Post. Conrad, always a pleasure to have you on here, and we'll look forward to doing it again next Friday. Have a great weekend. Pleasure's mine. Thank you, John. Thank you. Conrad Black, author, commentator, and historian.